Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of the Aviators Cafe podcast. Today, I have a very experienced pilot down the line on Zoom. His name is Tom Heitma, uh, also known on Instagram as fit to fly 787 And uh, Tom, how's it going? Good, good. How's everybody doing? They're pretty good. I, can't, I have no complaints. Uh, so, Tom, take us back however many years it was for you. Um, when the aviation bug got a hold of you and said, we need you here. Uh, well, it was, I was 14 years old and uh, I was a bit of a troublemaker back then. Uh, my brother and sister did great in school. I did terribly. And I remember my mother saying to me, uh, I have two hopes for you. One of which is that you're not in jail and the other is that you have a job. And uh, luckily I was able to exceed those expectations and, and flying was, was the avenue to that. Uh, when I was 14, I took a discovery flight and which is about 20 minute flight and Cessna had a thing where you could go for an airplane ride for $5. And I have people hear that and they're like, how is that even possible? And you know, life was cheap back then. I think Cessnas are 20 bucks an hour or something like that, I don't know. but. Um, so I took a discovery flight and I, in that moment, it was life changing. I was like, this is what I want to do. And a lot of times I think for us, it's finding that one thing that we're passionate about. For me, I loved airplanes, but until I really got into one and had my hands on the controls, I didn't realize how much I was going to love it. So that those were the roots. So how did you essentially go from that discovery flight to essentially finding a flight school to be able to do your flight training and how did you also go about paying for your flight training well my family didn't have a lot of money uh, so I worked at a, an appliance store and I, I cleaned up and I cleaned I, these back then televisions they had these things called the uh, an XL 100 it was made by RCA and this is a really heavy television set with tubes in it and we have to move those things around and they were they had Con these wooden consoles and we I'd have to clean those things and because jobs were so difficult to get back then they would pay below minimum wage so I made a dollar 25 an hour and for five hours I remember I would work I would get six dollars and 25 cents and every couple of weeks I would have enough money to uh, afford a flying lesson and that's what I would spend it on and I borrowed money from my family from my uh for any, anywhere I could get it. I actually went to Embry-Riddle. Uh, that's, uh, you know, back in the 1980s when I, I attended there. And, uh, you know, you, you take the loans. Education is one of those things you have to invest in. And that's what I invested in. And even in high school, I, I'd already got my private pilot license. Uh, instead of going to the prom, I got a multi-engine rating. And uh, needless to say, I made the right move. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, you pick your love, you know, there's always time for other things. But at, the, at that point, it was airplanes. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, definitely something I can relate to for prom, because uh, on the day prom happened with me, I was uh, under my Mercedes at the time, just screwing around on it. So good as it should be, right? Yeah. Uh, but Good to continue from there, I, I, uh, I, I went to Embry-Riddle and I didn't fly at Riddle. I actually took lessons. Uh, at North Air Aviation, I went to Prescott, Arizona, and uh, and I earned a CFI, I think probably, I don't know, when was it, probably uh, I was 20 or so, 19, probably 19, 
And, and from there, uh, I could start instructing. It's all about you know, getting onto an airline is getting hired as young as you possibly can, getting a seniority number, because that sets the pace for the rest of your life. And I did know that. I had talked to people growing up in Pittsburgh, uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who worked for US Air. They said that is the singular most important thing. So I focused on that. So I, I did a little bit of a non-standard uh, approach to it, but it luckily worked out well for me. Yeah, so kind of backing off on the CFI thing, at one point at one point in your flight training, did you say, yeah, I want to be a CFI and build my hours that way versus, for example, doing banner towing, uh, flying jumpers up or like right. aerial survey? A lot of it was just accessibility of, of, of employment and uh, CFI was the most accessible. Uh, the, the other thing is when you teach something, you know it a lot better. And as much as I would have taken any job I could get, I enjoyed teaching the same way I enjoy mentoring. I like passing along my knowledge uh, when it comes to, to being a pilot. And I even back then wanted to make it something that mattered. Uh, I made a post here recently about uh, a handicap, uh, actually disabled program that I taught. Uh, these were pilots. We had a bunch of them, people who had been in accidents, who had lost the use of their legs and became pilots. So the thing is about instructing, a lot of people look at it as, well, that's something I have to do to get to the next step. But if you can make it count and you can make it worth something, then it becomes empowering. And it, I look back at my instructing time now as some of the, the best times of my life. I really, really enjoyed uh, being able to, to teach these people who otherwise never believed they could fly airplanes. And that doesn't have to be a person in a wheelchair. It could just be some kid who, who, who always wanted to fly and, and you're able to pass that passion. That's, that's something that, that really kind of, um, uh, you know, I always say pilots, whether you're a, a, a flying a Cessna 150 or a captain on a Dreamliner, we tend to be kindred spirits. And uh, we have that passion in common and instructing is, is a nice, is a nice way of passing that along. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I kind of feel that as well when, even if like, let's say there's a, a pilot on a deadhead uh, and he's sitting next to me, we can automatically link up and start a conversation about flying because yeah. we have the same interest, even if, even though I'm flying 172 or a DA 40 new generation or DA 20 Cantona. You know, right. we still have the same passion for flying, you know, even though the pilots in the might fly triple sevens or Dreamliners for, for, as, as their job, essentially. Yes. So, and I think that goes for every, anyone in aviation that, you know, we're in it because we enjoy it, even though we might do, you know, maintenance or loading the plane or fueling the plane. Yeah, I mean, you know, not everybody seems to love flying. I fly with guys who, who just kind of made it a job. Uh, but they're, I don't want to say they're miserable, but they don't love it to the level that I do. Uh, for me, learning airplanes was always something that was, you know, most guys at an airline will they'll go to a narrow body aircraft uh, and then they'll, they'll maybe go to a wide body as a first officer and then go back to a narrow body as a captain and then to maybe the same wide body as a captain. So it's two airplanes, maybe three throughout a career. Uh, for me, I wanted to learn every airplane I could get my hands on. And that's what I did. I just kept bidding on new airplanes and letting the airline buy me type ratings. And, uh, and the 787 is number nine at America. <laughs> 
uh, 10 total now. And <laughs> hey, if they got Airbus, they've got an A350. I go fly that thing too. Or if we had like a 777X on order, I think I'd, I'd go to school on that thing. And, you know, even these Czech airmen are like, dude, you're a glutton. And I'm like, no, man, I love this stuff. So a lot of it is the way you approach it. Yeah, definitely. And you have 10 type ratings now? Yeah, 10 total. Uh, six of them Boeings. And then let's see, two Douglas, the MD-11, the DC-9, I flew the MD-80, the Fokker 100. Uh, let's see, the shorts, 330, 360. That's, that was the same type. And then uh, I think that's 10. I think I got them all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely uh, quite something just to be racking up on the, the type rating. The back of your type, uh, commercial rating must be like stacked. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it, it. There's definitely some ink back there, but I I really enjoyed it. It was by my own doing. It was by my you know these these were my badges for me. <laughs> I, I really to and especially with the Boeing fleet because I, I'm a legacy American Airlines. Uh, we didn't have Airbuses until we we merged uh, into some other carriers. So for me to go from flight engineer on a 727 to right seat, and then we get to fly that thing even as a captain and then progress to uh, newer technology airplanes. It was a lot of fun because each time I flew a newer airplane, I could see how the airplane had evolved and stuff that might've been a little problematic had been fixed on the subsequent airplane. And then now it's a 7-8, I, I hate to say it, as much as I love that airplane, uh, the triple seven flies a little bit better. Uh, the seven five was just a rocket ship. I mean, that thing is a Ferrari with wings. That was my favorite by all with the Rolls Royce engines. You could just stand that thing on its tail and it would just go. Um, so it's fun to have that, that accumulation of all those airplanes and, uh, and to be able to look back and see how they progressed and see the things that you liked about the new ones. And, and in some cases, things that you didn't like as much. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and also another thing is that every seven, every person that has flown that I've met that flies a seven five seven or has flown the seven five seven has loved it. Yeah, and I, yeah. and I think it's also one of my favorites because it's just so so overpowered and it's it, be a dream. It for me looked to fly. beautiful. Yeah, it sounded beautiful. It it flew beautifully. You go into somewhere like Santa Ana, I think that was what fifty seven hundred feet, and you pretty much pick your brick. And you could land on it and you got those eight wheels back there and the thing would stop on a dime and and taking off out of there. I remember, too, they wanted you to hold the brakes and put the throttles up. And that thing, I swear, I wanted to tear the tires off when you did that. You could just hear it back there roaring. You like, release the brakes. You're like, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, do they realize in the back how much fun we're having up here with this? <laughs> And then you get power, you know, the, the throttles way back on power as you get to about I think, seven or 800 feet out of there. I forgot that uh, there's a back bay departure that you had to go down that was very noise uh, sensitive. So it amounted to a very high thrust takeoff uh, with a significant power reduction just after takeoff. So you had to kind of push the thing over. Uh, but needless to say, we as pilots love that stuff. Uh, there are a lot of approaches in the U.S. that they, they seemed a little more um, task oriented and a little more challenging, but uh, we as pilots seem to really like those. If you know, if you're into that kind of thing, yeah, I know. I, uh, the approaches for me that I always found the most fun are the ones that are the most challenging. Yeah, yeah, they they, they challenge your skills and they, they make you a better pilot. 
Yeah, and definitely, especially when you're flying a more high-performance aircraft and you just have to stay way ahead of the airplane. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I noticed the difference between when I fly a DA-40 new generation and a 172. The 40 right. new gen is just more faster because it's just a turbocharged and it has a constant speed prop. So you're just right. doing the approach at, like, 130, 140 knots. And, like, before you know, you have to slow down and put flaps right. in yeah, you, you could fall behind it a little more easily, 172. And I, I still instruct now. I actually just renewed. Uh, I just did my my FERC on my CFII. And uh, so I'm still involved in that, too, uh, giving uh, flight reviews and stuff like that. So, yeah, I can relate. Uh, it, it's uh, there, there is definitely a difference in uh, in in reaction time and complexity and, and uh, depending on what airplane you're in. A lot of it's mass as you get bigger as the bigger aircraft, too. You, you notice the mass of an airplane. Uh, as you're uh, just moving it around, slowing it down, things like that. Yeah, who do you use for renewing your CFII, actually? Uh, I, I, took, I used um, uh, the King course this time. Uh, I actually had the great pleasure of uh, meeting, uh, meeting the Kings at Oshkosh this year. They're like legendary. I got yeah. a picture. Um, they look really small next to me because I'm about six five. I look like a circus <laughs> show next to them, but they're just the sweetest people. And and uh, to take their course and and to uh, to listen to them, they did a little talk. Uh, I was uh, at a NAFI uh, conference there, and uh, and it was just really fun to meet them and, and get a picture. They're like celebrities to a lot of us. Yeah, I know. Uh, for for me, they're kind of like heroes because I did their uh, private course and instrument course as well. Yeah, and they're so, passionate. They're total nerds, just like me. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. just their dad humor and everything. I can relate yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Their humor is like, you, if you don't get it, you don't get it. It just goes yeah. over your head. Yeah. And then like, yeah, if you get it, you should can get a good kick out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've heard some people use American Flyers as well to renew their CFII. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, I bought their course, I started to go through it, and I realized that I still had the King course, because I had bought that a couple of years ago, uh, and it was still valid, and I kind of, when I went through the, the King course, it just, it it laid out a little bit better to me. I know the American Flyers course, uh, it has, uh, you can renew that thing forever, so two years from now, I'll probably do that one. Uh, any information, you know, these guys put it together nicely, I've heard good things about American Flyers, too. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, it's a matter of, of doing the work on it. And what I like is that they, they truly, um, they look at what's going on. They, they, don't, they don't just give you the same recycled BS. They literally are, are looking at trends and accidents and incidents and, and learning from it and, and teaching that and, and that improving safety. Yeah, that's always important to stay up to date with the most important uh, information that's happened as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but circling back to uh, your time building, at what point did you say, um, yeah, let me find a regional that flows into a mainline and then eventually American Airlines where you're at? Well, the regionals back then, actually uh, the flow through didn't exist. And what, what happened was I, I was able to build some multi-engine time uh, in, a, in a beach barren. I worked at Allegheny County Airport in Pittsburgh and that was at the time the second largest corporate base. And I pretty much ate, lived and breathed at the airport. Uh, I'd flight instruct all day. And then there was an air freight uh, outfit that would allow people to fly along with them there. And uh, so I'd go along with those guys. 
anybody that needed anyone to, to sit in the right seat with them, to hold the controls, whatever it was, uh, I would, I just wanted to be near airplanes. And uh, after I, gosh, it wasn't too long, uh, I was fortunate enough to get an interview with Pennsylvania Airlines, which was uh, Allegheny Commuter at the time. And uh, they were, uh, you know, they're just looking for, for, for guys uh, that, that would uh, that get through their course. Um, and, and luckily in a short story 30, which was a bit of a handful, it was just, to me, it was just a nice big airplane. It was 30 seats, but the thing was a monstrosity to me compared to what I'd flown in the past. And at that point, I noticed a lot of guys were like, well, you got to get to the major. And granted, back then, those airplanes were all hand flown. Uh, when you landed on a runway, it wasn't just getting to the runways, not hitting a deer when you landed. Uh, it was Central Pennsylvania, State College, Williamsport, um, Harrisburg, places like that. And some of these airports, you really had to be careful and you wouldn't have the same uh, snow removal, weather reporting, AWOS didn't exist, none of that stuff. So you just had to kind of figure out uh, if, if you were good to go, you'd get weather reports and th they could be a little sketch because they would, uh, as they say, give you what you needed. And uh, some of these guys, you, you know, you, you get down to minimums and you'd be like, wow, there's not an airport anywhere near, you know, in front of the nose. So, you know, you mean, we're punching right back out. And uh, after about two years of that in Pennsylvania, I went to Simmons Airlines in Detroit and flew the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, Upper Michigan, all those areas, and continued all these DME arc approaches, stuff like that. But what I have to say about it is because it was all hand-flown, it really, it, it really made you a heck of a pilot. You know, you're flying a plane that's shaped like a box into a crosswind onto a snow-covered runway. So... You know, when people made fun of that airplane, I was like, yeah, maybe, you know, but it's, it's ugly and it's ugly flying. But, man, it really you really cut your teeth on it. And 3000 hours of hand flying below 10,000 feet, uh, you know, it'll 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 definitely make you a different person. Yeah, that's for sure. Just hand flying all the approaches all the time. And yeah, it's some st sucky situations. It'll definitely make yeah. you a really good pilot. Yeah, yeah. As they say, smooth seas never made a good sailor. So, right, yeah, yeah, and I had my share of uh, of turbulent seas, but it was to me it was all part of the learning experience, all part of flying airplanes. And I can even remember the week before I got onto American Airlines. It was in 1986. I was a captain on a Shorts 360, and I think I was going to Alpena, Michigan, somewhere like that. And I'd done an arc approach, and this short runway and it was snow covered and I looked at him like I just, I don't want to do this and I just remember punching out and going back over to Traverse City I'm like I you know we learn our limits as pilots and I, I learned mine there too it's just you know nowadays it's okay stable approach to minimums whatever but um, when you add all those other elements to it uh, back in the day you you had to make a lot of uh, uncomfortable decisions, but you had to make them smartly because the consequences could be far more severe. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you don't want to end up in a box, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, so essentially you have done that time building, uh, doing sketchy flying in a Corsair 360. Um, yeah. uh, 
how did you find a transition to American Airlines in 86 to be? Well, it, was, it was the Shorts 360, Belfast, yeah. Ireland. They call it the um, the Belfast bomber. The airplane was made in <laughs> Belfast and the Shorts brothers uh, made it. Um, but yeah, well, what I did is I applied and uh, they, at the time, American Airlines was interviewing lots of people. They were kind of an interview machine. And I just kind of saw it as interview practice. It was the first place uh, that interviewed me. And at the time, I really wanted to work for US Air, but they just weren't calling. And uh, American, on the other hand, you know, they would bring you in, have a look at you. And if you got to a second interview, you're pretty lucky. They had a lot of, uh, they just, I don't know why they called so many people in. Uh, but they turned away a lot. So my plan there was, hey, I'm just going to go say hi and hopefully they'll, they'll, you know, mm -hmm. I can do okay. And then when he called me back, I'm like, oh, wow, I got a second interview. And then uh, after that, it was a third and that was psych testing and, and uh, the, the intensive medicals. I mean, I, I believe our medical was, it was like an astronaut medical. It was unbelievable what they, what they looked at because they were looking at a pilot and I know how they do it today. Although uh, I, I probably will do, be doing some interviewing um, uh, down in Dallas soon. Uh, the, uh, they, they were looking at what this pilot was, how healthy they'd be in the next 30 years, not just right now. So mm -hmm. I think that was why the, the medicals are so far more intensive. And a lot of guys didn't get through that. Uh, luckily, I've always been uh, very proactive with fitness and health and and uh, try to contribute to my to my own longevity as much as I can, and uh, and I had a lot of those values back when I was 23 years old too. And luckily, that's that's when the American uh, sent me my letter and said, "Hey, you're hired," and blew me away. I didn't expect it. I didn't think they were they were going to hire me. I was it was interview practice for me, and it turned into my job. Yeah, that's quite uh, unique that you just thought of an interview practice and you end up working there and still are there. Yeah. Yeah, it worked out, man. It's been yeah. uh, one into my 36th year there. Uh, I'm 59, so hitting the big 6-0, which means uh, just uh, you know, over, just over five years left before I get kicked out for being too old. Yeah, that is a bummer. They do have a federal uh, uh, imposed retirement age for uh, 121 operations. Yeah, well, it was 60. That was a lot tougher. And, and yeah. I'm Thing is when I got hired, when uh, guys turned 60, they these guys looked pretty hit, man. They were like 58, 59, and they were ready to go. But it was these were smokers, drinkers. Uh, longevity is a lot different now than it was 30 years ago. Uh, these these guys were really winding down, and you could see the cognitive decline in some of these people. Whereas uh, 60 is a different 60, 65 is just people are a lot more intact now uh, physically, cognitively uh, than they were back then. Yeah, definitely. And also making sure you stay fit by exercising as much as you can, living a healthy lifestyle definitely does make a great impact on, you know, not only your physical health, but your mental health as well. So absolutely. Yeah. So essentially you continue with the, um, uh, that your uh, career at American Airlines, how did you just end up bidding for the airplanes that you did bid for? And then, um, yeah, how did that work really? Well, everything is seniority based with an airline. And it's kind of what I, the point I went back to earlier is that uh, when, you, uh, when you start with an airline, you get a seniority number. So the guy at American Airlines, we have almost 14,000 pilots. That's just mainline, that doesn't even include Eagle. 
uh, you know, our, 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 you know, our regional. And obviously the most senior guy, the guy that's been there the longest is seniority number one. And the person who just got hired is number 14,000. And everything from your schedule to the airplane uh, is dictated by your seniority number. So there are two things that will affect how fast you move up. Uh, one of which is how many pilots they hire behind you. And secondly, how many pilots leave in front of you. Uh, so luckily, I got on at a good time and there was a great deal of turnover. Uh, they were expanding the airline. They just bought a bunch of new airplanes. The MD-80s were coming in. Uh, they're long gone now. We're getting Airbus 300s back then. Uh, those are also long gone. MD-11s, 7-2s, all these things. All the, the 7-2s are old. But um, so they're... There were uh, a lot of opportunities in advancement. And so for me, uh, being single when I was there, I just wanted to enjoy going places. So I would literally go base to base. I started in Chicago, actually, the New York base. Then I went to Chicago, went to Raleigh, went to Miami. Uh, and then for me, it was just kind of, I had a, a car and two suitcases. And I knew if I built a bit different base, I, my job would be there. So I could bid, say, 727 uh, out of first officer or captain, whatever it was, out of Miami. And I'd go down there and I'd go enjoy it. And I'd and not only learn the area a little bit, but do some traveling from there. Uh, and the beauty of it is because airlines have a lot, and the bigger ones obviously have a lot of bases, uh, you can kind of find places to live and places to enjoy uh, while you're working. And for me, I would go somewhere and sometimes it would be a different airplane. Uh, I also just loved the, the, the just getting to a new airplane was exciting for me too. And, you know, depending on what your life is and what your responsibilities are in life, if you have a, a wife and children like that, you need a more stable life. You can't just bid airplane to airplane base to base. You need to kind of have one place. And um, the suggestion I always make as a, as a professional pilot, professional standards representative, I've been doing pro standards for 25 years and pilot assistance work is get yourself to an airplane. And once you're there, um, you want to work to live and not live to work. Uh, if you're, if you're freewheeling and you want to just go fly airplanes and make money, great. But there does come a time where you have to scale that back. And that's what I did. Uh, when I was uh, when I was raising my children, they're all uh, they're all in college or beyond now. Um, so that stability is important in what airplane and what base you bid to. Yeah, that's very important. That the, essentially the entire airline world revolves around seniority to get that seniority number as soon as you possibly can. Nice. And yeah, that's why you know building hours in every way you can, like in the way you did with sitting right seat and CFI uh, helps you be able to make your hours into the, and therefore build up your seniority to the point where you could eat bid for a set right seat or left seat in the 727 out of Miami or wherever you wanted to work. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it depends on movement. So, uh, and right now, for instance, uh, American is going to be hiring, I think 2,200 pilots next year alone. They're looking at 45 a week. And uh, so when I talk to people, you know, I have a lot of people reach out to me at Instagram and I say to them, look, you know, get yourself ready, get to that airline as quickly, get that number as quickly as you can, because the more people you have behind you, there's a saying at the airline is that they hire right up to the furlough. 
uh, it ebbs and flows. It's never really stable. And there are economic downturns. There's COVID, there are, there are fleet replannings. There's a lot of stuff that happens. And the more pilots you have behind you, the more stability you have in your life and the less chance you have of furlough. And uh, that, that's why, you know, to, uh, to get on and get that seniority number is, is pinnacle. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I heard like somewhere around that if you have about 10% of the pilots below you, then you're more or less fine from furlough if there was a crisis to be happening. Yeah, it depends. I and mean, we furloughed a bunch a couple of years ago with COVID and we over furloughed. They offered an early out and, and too many people left. And now the airline is trying to re, you know, get, get more people in because of the, 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 uh, the um, early out programs that they that, that they had offered, a lot of guys jumped on that. It was a good deal. Uh, it's just can't have those guys back. So we need to now hire to, uh, and it's good for you know, the, the, the more junior pilots because they're moving up more quickly. Yeah, I have a friend of mine that's uh, working his way up uh, from PSA up to American Airlines right now. So uh, we'll see if he gets a CRJ type rating. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. It's a good airplane. Yeah, it's a good uh, plane to time build on. So you're doing a lot of approaches, a lot of landings. So yeah, yeah. Oh, those guys—they you get a lot of legs in, and that's the thing you want to do when you're younger because you're a little more bulletproof. Uh, as you get older, the 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 effects of fatigue and and just being in an airplane aren't you don't you're not as resilient as you are when you're 25, 30 years old, and you have to count for that also uh, with your career longevity. But you, you can handle a lot better as when you're younger. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, that's also something for people to keep in mind as well that, you know, as you do get older, you kind of can't handle the same things anymore. Right. Can't be pulling old nighters and uh, yeah. still show and we're up. Yeah, now too, but I'm all about the sleep now. I mean, you know, the, we don't, uh, we don't, I get to a layover somewhere and sleep is number one. I get together with the guys and we'll go find some food somewhere, but uh, the days of going out and burning the midnight oil, that's kind of probably what, what, beat these guys up back in the 70s and 80s uh they there was just you know it was, they, they used to say it's 600 miles an hour between parties and, and you, they, they looked it uh now for me I, you know i i, I want to live a long life and a healthy life and enjoy my wife and my children and uh and part of that is is not tearing it up on a layover <laughs> and still having a good time there's a lot to see there's a lot to enjoy uh but you know i'm there to fly airplanes and not uh you know, not run from the police. Yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be the worst case scenario that you have to use your uh, Dreamliner as a getaway vehicle. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't happen, luckily. Yeah. Um, the guys are, for the most part, are, are, are a really straight punch. We kind of look for that, too, you know, in the interview process to, to, to see, you know, and you, you can kind of sense it. And that's just it. Most of the guys I see coming through now, uh, they, they are, they're, they're passionate about flying. Uh, and that's one of the reasons you'll always hear in interviews, oh, why do you want to work here? And, you know, the answer is not, hey, you know, because pilots are cool and, and, uh, and chicks dig us or whatever that, I mean, it's, no, it's because you're passionate about aviation and, and you love, you know, you love this job and you love these airplanes and, and you want to do a great job at it. Uh, one of, the things I always remember uh, with my professional standards work is we've met a lot with uh, with our, our management, 
And one of our vice presidents, our uh, ex-director of flight, once I was sitting there with him talking, he said, you know, the most important thing is to be a steward of your profession. And I never forgot those words, is to truly do that, be that, no matter whether you're a flight instructor, a charter pilot, towing banners, or whatever it is, be a steward of your profession, be a professional. Uh, and and it, it brings the most to the job. It brings the greatest satisfaction. And uh, it makes you feel the best at the end of the day, know, knowing you've done the best you can as a professional, as well as, as serve the people who are paying your salary. Yeah, that's something to always keep in mind. And something I always say to other people is that the day you stop learning is it about aviation is the day you should stop being in aviation. Yeah, it's true. And I still learn today, and a lot of it's relearning. Uh, it's changed so much uh, since I started. And, uh, and so, yeah, you have to, and the beauty of it today too, is that uh, where the FAA of 40, 30, 40 years ago, uh, they were more an enforcement agency and now they're so proactive. Uh, I'm so impressed with, the, with what the FAA has become. Uh, they literally look at, okay, someone made a mistake and they say, instead of saying, oh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna smack you for that. They say, all right, what caused the mistake? It was, it, you know, was it an unintentional mistake? And what can we do to keep other people from making that mistake? And that truly improves safety, whether it's uh, controlled flight in the terrain. Uh, it's, you know, very, it's so many things that are causing fuel starvation. Uh, I, I, uh, VFR pilots flying into IMC conditions, whatever. You know, there's so many. They, a stabilized approach is another one that was never really tended to. Uh, when when we were younger, not even at the airline. And a lot of these things now that have been learned by truly analyzing accidents and incidents and reports from pilots have have really contributed to safety. I'm very impressed with that. Uh, yeah, that's that's something that I always notice as well. I, I'm a big fan of watching the air crash investigations and I'm always amazed by like how much is learned from each accident, even though it might have been like a small little thing, yeah. you know, small little things out of big things in the long run. Yeah, I, I, even at the airline now, the stuff that they're bringing us, uh, and maybe I'm, you know, a lot, a lot of us go, they, they leave that simulator and like, man, I, I really got whooping there. But it's like you're learning some really incredible stuff. Like, for instance, uh, what we do now, we do a full stall in the 787, we take it to altitude. Uh, the, the simulator that is, and it's a deep stall, and they show us the characteristics of the airplane when you get that that separation. Um, unlike uh, uh, unlike a, a conventional flat uh, straight wing aircraft, a sweep wing doesn't have the same stall uh, stall characteristics. On um, you know where it typically like in a Cessna, something with a straight wing, the nose will drop. Whereas if you lose that that uh, you get that separation uh, over the wing in a in a large aircraft. Uh, a sweep wing aircraft, the nose typically doesn't come down. It'll just stay and it'll shake. And there have been accidents that have been caused by that. So they take us through that entire thing and they show us how to recover from, from these situations. And this is just one of many. Um, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with how proactive the training has become and even aircraft maneuvering in large aircraft. Yeah, I think that uh, these deep stall training has come from the Air, Air France 447 incident um, over a decade ago now. Yeah, from, from yeah there, there was another, this 757 that had block static ports. Uh, yeah. The Air France, uh, yeah, that was, that was an instrument error. We practiced that too, uh, to where yeah. 
you know, there was so much confusion. The one thing that we do as pilots that is most important is never be a Monday morning quarterback on this stuff. Uh, these guys, they did what they could with the resources they had. And we can say, oh, I would have done this. The fact is, we don't know that. And all we can do is, you know, bless those people who, who unfortunately fell into those circumstances and then learn from what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with the, say an airspeed failure, you know, where, where you all of a sudden have, you know, you've got an airplane that's, that's stalling and, and showing an overspeed all at the same time. There are a lot of signals there that could be very confusing. And by duplicating that stuff, uh, if we ever do run into it again, we already have, have seen that circumstance. And I think that's why aviation is becoming so much safer is because of our, our proactive approach to it now. Yeah, definitely the the learning from the 757 that blocked uh, static ports. Uh, I think it was the pitot tube on the captain side that was blocked. Yeah, yeah, when they do deep stall, I believe. Yeah, 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 uh, Bergen Air 301. Um, right, yeah. Yeah, just the captain kept holding the stick back. and. Yeah, he just didn't know what he had. And, and, and that's why, you know, we, we it's it's good to learn from these things. And, and when I hear people, you know, they, they, they actually look into these accidents and they learn from them, it's, it's reassuring to us because uh, we're, we're able to, to analyze this and, and, and learn our lessons. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, that's something there's, there's always something to learn from each of these accidents that, you know, you could be busy forever learning from each accident and continually improving, you know, your own skills with, you know, as a pilot and be like, oh, yeah, I remember this situation from X, Y and Z accident. Let me not do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that definitely something to always keep in mind to continue to keep learning. Because this is an industry where you have to keep learning. Yeah, you do. It's very dynamic, and uh, you have to. Sometimes it's also relearning. They, they change things. You know, just the way that things have uh, have have gone so far away from even when I learned. Uh, and it's kind of a funny point when you think about it. There are people in life who are who are very stubborn to to the, the new technologies and the new things that happen. Uh, when I was first at American, I remember there were people who tell me stories about these old captains in the 1950s who didn't want to go above 10,000 feet in pressurized aircraft. Pressurization was something new to them. And uh, they're like, no, I'm going up there. There's no air up there. Something happens, you know, and, and these, uh, I believe it was the Convair, the, the, the couple of aircraft had had pressurization problems and had, had had structural failures due to them. They were scared to death of that. And then into the 80s, the FMCs were starting to, 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 to uh, be built into the airplanes. And a lot of guys just couldn't really conceptualize what FM. They'd gone VOR to VOR their, their whole life. And it, that is continuing now with VNAV approaches, uh, LNAV, you know, the RMP stuff, GPS, it, all of this stuff has given us so many new tools that actually improve safety uh, but we have to embrace them. Uh, we can't sit there and go, I'm going to do it the old way. You know, I don't like digital cameras, so I'm going to go have my film developed. You have to look at it and say, all right, what is this new technology? How do I embrace it? How do I learn from it? And how do I apply it? And uh, and that is another thing with newer airplanes. All of those, whoever's watching, listening to this, uh, right now, you're going to be learning the latest and the greatest of technologies. But I guarantee you, 30 years from now, you're going to be going, yeah, I remember we used to go direct. 
Now we just tell the airplane and it does it or whatever. I mean, you're going to see the same evolution occur beyond the same way I've seen it for the last 45 years. Yeah, and I also noticed that with myself um, because in my private training, um, I went from the round steam gauge dials yeah. and not knowing what an electronic flight bag was. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was like the guy that with the paper checklist and the paper yeah. section with charts and all, all that stuff. And yeah. um, eventually when I came to Embry-Riddle, I kind of had to, I was kind of forced to digitize. Yeah. Um, yeah. Essentially upgrade to four flight, uh, right. learn what four flight was. And, you know, I just kind of sit with a, an instructor buddy of mine. I'm like, teach me everything about this. Cause I literally did not know how to work it. And, yeah, you know, I literally spend like hours and hours and hours just grappling. Oh know. yeah, you just gotta mess with it, push buttons, you know, and yeah. then figure it out. Yeah. yeah, it's a good thing. And you know, I'm a big advocate too of of uh, of the steam gauges. I mean, if you really want to be a pilot, and this is you know the old guy talking here is, go fly a tail dragger somewhere and learn how to fly that. Be a stick and rudder guy. Uh, a lot of the guys I fly with when they're not doing a great job with landings, it's because they take off. It's V1 rotate gear up autopilot on. I hand fly every leg unless I'm, you know, got so much other stuff going on or if I've got somebody where I, I feel task saturated, uh, I hand fly through 20,000 feet all the time. I click it off. Now, if it's a far East or a Europe flight and I feel the fatigue, I make use of the technology, which is what it's there for. It's, 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 it, you know, for, it helps with task saturation. But one of the things they've been doing in a simulator with us is they turn everything off and they say, okay, uh, take off, go around the pattern and land in a dreamliner with no flight directors, no ILS, nothing. They're like, and turn off the auto throttles while you're at it. And a lot of, a lot of times guys, their first couple approaches like that, they're like, you know, they're, they're, they're used to doing the little, the HUD thing. And, you know, we call it, put the lime in the coconut. You just kind of like line it up and it's a, it's a video game. It's a PlayStation. But when you take that away, now you have to, you have to bring yourself back a couple of steps to where now you're a pilot and not an airplane operator. And I'm a big advocate of that too, because we can point to more accidents. Uh, the uh, the Asiana in San Francisco, where mm -hmm. as you know, they they were just they were used to flying ILSs, and uh, and so I and, and we've also learned from that, and that's why a lot of times now, or actually every time, they take everything away, and then they build the technology from the ground up to make sure that we can do the basics. Um, at, at the airline they do that with every fleet yeah that's very important to thing to know and you know i'm also the kind of guy that you know as soon as i come to the initial approach fix or even earlier when i'm on top of descent all the automation goes off yeah good and it's a good thing and, and like i yeah. say if you're tired if you're fatigued or stressed or all that um you you need to uh you know use the technology when you have to when you need to uh, and especially depending on where you're going. If you're flying into a small airport, not as necessary. If you're going to Chicago O'Hare, where you don't want to miss a transmission there. These, these guys are on top of it. There's so many airplanes going in uh, to where you use the technology to assist you to maintain safety. Uh, but don't get so accustomed to using it that you lose your flying skills. Yeah, that's very important. I remember once, uh, you know, having to use the automation all the way 
down to minimums and then switching it off because of how exhausted I was from a flight. Yeah, good move, man. Good stuff. That's you. That's the way you should do it. Yeah, there was a fun enough a flight all the way down from Key West up to Daytona. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I was completely toast after that. I was like, Phew. yeah, and there are things that contribute to that. Uh, we get that with circadian rhythms. Uh, we do our best to, to try and rest, but there are times when uh, when we're just not quite as alert as others, and uh, and we need to assess ourselves. Uh, you know, one of the other things I kind of have a little bit of a hard time with are these all the acronyms they have these days. You know, I am safe and all that. Like, okay, that's a good place to start. But your self assessment should be: How am I feeling? You know, what's contributing to that? You know, am I tired? Am I stressed? Did I just have an argument with someone? Did someone cut me off in traffic? Am I too happy? Am I distracted? You know, there's a lot of stuff. And you know, to parlay on that, I realized that uh, you know, flying a single pilot airplane, you are uh, you know, you're the pilot flying. And when you get to a second airplane, you are pilot flying or pilot monitoring. And pilot monitoring, although they say, oh, yeah, okay, you're monitoring the instruments. To me, I'm also monitoring the people I'm flying with. Uh, and, I'm, you know, when we, when we meet and there's two, three, four people, uh, two relief pilots, if I'm flying an international leg, uh, hey, you know, where'd you come in from? Translation, you know, are you, are you well rested? How long have you been on the airplane? Are you proficient? Currency and proficiency are far different. Uh, you know, I, like for instance, I'll fly with a buddy of mine uh, who, this dude was a captain on a 747 for EVA and he lives right near the airport. When I fly with him, I just know he catches every, we, we just, it's such an easy cockpit. But if you have a guy who maybe uh, is newer on the airplane, doesn't have the same level of proficiency or, or, or time in the airplane, there's a little bit more, you got to pay a little more attention with them. Uh, it's always a safe airplane, but it's, it's, you just have to, to tend to it a little bit more. So pilot flying, pilot monitoring in a single pilot airplane, you are both. Uh, and to say pilot monitoring in, in a, a Cessna 172 means you're monitoring your own performance. Am I tired? Am I stressed? Am I a little too amped about something? Am I unfamiliar with the airport? Uh, there's a lot of stuff where you want to take your own personal inventory. And that's why, like when I say I'm not a huge fan of the, you know, you know I, I am safe. You're running through all these letters. Yeah, dude, you know, that's that's. How are you feeling? Self-assess. Um, you know, there are days I'm like, all right, I'm going to punch someone in the head. It's not, I am safe. I'm like, I know that I'm amped about something. And um, and by not making everything an acronym and, and getting, you know, maybe making that an initial consideration, but moving away from it, you'll never see someone say, I am safe in a Dreamliner or in an airline aircraft. The, the assessment has, it matures itself and perpetuates itself to a different arena. And that's what I always tell people when I'm teaching them, like, okay, that's a good place to start. But when you're driving out to the airport, don't run through an acronym. Take true mental inventory of how you're feeling physically, emotionally, uh, mentally, all of those things, those assessments go far beyond an acronym. Yeah, that's that's very important thing to keep in mind as well that, you know, the I'm safe checklist, as as we call it nowadays, um, that that's a good place to start. But you have to, as you mentioned, build up from that. Like to really, how are you really feeling? Right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You can use it all day, but you know it's not really yeah. going to. It's take not going to really describe how you're really feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And take take inventory. You know yourself the best. 
and, uh, and take inventory of the person you're flying with, whether you're a student or an instructor or whatever, um, you need to, you need to be able to, uh, and this is something that, you know, I don't know how many, what, what, who the audience is here, but uh, this is something I take with me as an airline pilot. And it's kind of an interesting point that I want to make is when you work, say, for a factory or an office, something like that, you see the same people every day in the same environment. And if somebody's having a bad day, you kind of can sort of tell uh, on a flight deck. When you're sitting next to another person, you may have never flown with them before. In most cases, you haven't. Uh, on the Dreamliner, we say we're an airline within an airline because we kind of know each other at, at certain crew bases because they're smaller flying. But when you have hundreds of airplanes, say Airbuses or, or 737s, you may not fly. We have ever flown or fly with that same person again. And they may be the only person uh that, that you see or you may be the only person they see for three days before they go home. They don't have that union hall. They don't have the softball team, the bowling league, the whatever, where they connect to other people. And that gives us a chance sometimes because you're sitting next to that person to kind of take inventory of how they're doing, you know, be that pilot monitoring. And one of the things, and I guess I'm making a little bit of a, 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 a uh, uh, a plug on professional standards and pilot assistance is that we have often noticed when someone's performance is starting to diminish that it's because there's stuff going on at home. There are stresses there. Are, you know, we, we as pilots can, you know, there, there, there have been, you know, there are divorces, there is alcohol, there's all kinds of stuff that's going on uh, in a pilot's life that other people in normal jobs would be able to see, but, they're able to hide that. And if we as pilots monitoring in the cockpit, create those dialogues and, and, and kind of assess who we're flying with, we can be of great help to other people. Uh, and especially goes all the way back to what we started talking about is we're kindred spirits. We kind of understand each other at a certain level. And, um, and that's why we kind of need to be there for each other on that level. Yeah, that's something I've, I've done my, my, myself with other people. Uh, like I've flown with, I'm like, hey, you know, you seem a little different today. What's going on? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we just talk about it, work it out. And, you yeah. know, uh, since, you know, a, lo a lot of my friends are pilots, we kind of understand each other at the same level, as you've mentioned, right. since we're all kindred spirits and we kind of think the same way, essentially. Yeah. And it affects performance. And that's just it. And, and the better we, the, the younger we start that, the more we start to ingrain those patterns of, of, of thinking about the person next to you, as well as assessing yourself, um, the safer you're going to be as a pilot throughout your career. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely important to, you know, to keep that always in mind and always to monitor yourself. Not only monitor yourself, monitor the person sitting next to you, because you are essentially sharing the same space. And in some cases, you know, depending on the aircraft size, you're basically within a few inches of each other, essentially. Yeah, so remember to shower. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Because I've definitely flown with instructors that I've not showered at, and I wish I had a, um, like, you know, those hooks up that I'll, that go on the washing line back in the days? I wish I had one of those blocking my nose. <laughs> well, hanging up some air fresheners in there, right? Yeah, pass them a bottle of deodorant and tell them to clean themselves. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, take a shower. Uh, so Tom, this is the 
part where I like to kind of do like a rapid fire section of uh, yeah. aviation. It's yeah. just kind of like answers that, you know, kind of come to the top of your head. Um, okay, hear me. What do you got? Uh, so what's your favorite airplane you've flown uh, throughout your career? Boeing 757 with Rolls-Royce engines. Uh, favorite approach? Uh, the uh, Santa Ana, Orange County. Oh, wait, I can hang on back off on that. Vail, Colorado, and then the river approach into D.C. And that's a three-way tie. Yeah. Uh, most challenging flight you've done? Oh, most challenging. Uh, had a uh, flight into Chicago where we had to land in a blizzard. Uh, dispatch didn't give us the fuel we needed. And... Uh, and we were within landing minimums, but it was it was a lot to have to deal with. Uh, everything was within the, the ability of the airplane, but uh, it was it was definitely a handful. It was 767 years ago. I just never forgot it. Uh, so let's say you're in an airport and you have to make a connecting flight to make your commute home. Uh, what's your go-to food at the airport? I tend to be a, a vegetarian, pescatarian. I try not to eat much air and much food. I'll get a salad or something like that. Uh, I, I really uh, stay away from foods that bog me down. I try to stay away from too much refined sugar. Uh, so uh, right now, they have these little farm fresh vending machines. Uh, sometimes I bring food with me. Uh, or I'll just grab a salad or something, something where I can, uh, where I don't beat myself up too much on diet because I know I'll feel later. And then Starbucks, Venti, Americano, put it in a thermos and, and rock that thing for about four hours into the flight. Yeah, definitely important. Uh, let's see. Uh, a favorite destination you have flown into? I love Rome. Uh, that's that's probably right now. It depends. I hear that a lot. It depends on what I'm looking for. Uh, I love Honolulu because I'm a surfer and I can go. We stay in Waikiki. I grab a surfboard and then I'm out there catching waves for a couple hours. And I literally sit there and go, wow, I can't believe I, you know, this is my layover. This is amazing. Uh, so I, if it's historic in the summer, uh, Rome, I think is amazing. Uh, and, but there's so many wonderful places. It all depends on, on kind of what you're in the mood for. I love uh, Central South America, too. I love the flavor of, of, of uh, the Latin culture. That it's, uh, people are made just wonderful there. Uh, so I, I wish I could just say one. It depends on what I'm in the mood for. But right now, I really like Rome. All right. That's fair enough. Um, what's the most scenic uh, route you've followed? Uh, believe it or not, uh, the, this well, scenic can vary also, whether you're looking at mountains or, or, or rivers or whatever. Um, even when we, we go polar sometimes, uh, I put a post up uh, not that long ago that's, uh, that's gotten a lot of attention as we flew by the coast of Greenland. And typically that's all covered by clouds and it was just an incredible visibility day and I was able to get a shot out of the window of that. Uh, that was incredibly scenic. We see that once in a while. Uh, the most consistently scenic would be flying a uh, Caribbean. Uh, I remember like a, a flight we had to Providencialis and a couple of those spots uh, where you're, it's like you're flying inside of a screensaver. It's nothing but just blue water and puffy clouds. And it, it's like, it's some kind of a video game. It's so beautiful to look at as you're flying. 
Uh, it's also uh, what contributes to it is not a lot of stuff going on in air traffic control. It's kind of a really chill uh, vibe when you're flying down there also. So that contributes uh, on top of just the beautiful scenery. All right. Uh, favorite thing about the Dreamliner you currently fly? Uh, well, I love how it looks. I love how the, the wing flexes. I, I love just the way it feels in my hands. Uh, it's, um, the, uh, the way it glides, you pull the throttles back. I swear you got to shoot that thing out of the sky to get it down. It just wants to fly. Uh, it, uh, it, it's, um, I, I would, I would say, uh, other than how it looks, I love how quiet it is up front. Uh, and I love that it, that it, that it's uh, a plane where you can shut everything off and enjoy hand flying too. All right. I gave you several answers to that question, didn't I? <laughs> well, that's fine. Multiple <laughs> answers are allowed. I mean, I never yeah. limited you to one answer only. So, <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right, Tom, thanks for coming on to the show. Let me brief a little yeah. bit after shutting down my, the recorders. And, my uh, pleasure. Uh, thanks for coming on. All right, my friend. Take care. Take care.